to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 23, verse 20, as we follow along with today's lesson. I would like to suggest that there's a total breakdown of justice here. When the judge is arguing with the people. Now, can you picture this if in the court there in Los Angeles, the people began to uh, speak up and all, and Judge Ito would start to argue with them? You know what he would do. He'd bring down the gavel and he'd say, order in the court. And he'd have the bailiff issue the people out and cite them all for contempt of court. So uh, the justice has broken down when the judge is arguing with the people over the issues, which really weren't issues. The people were determined to see an innocent man put to death. And there was just enough Roman justice that Pilate was recoiling against this. This was going against his conscience. He was convinced of the innocence of Jesus. And yet they were forcing him to do something that was a violation of his own sense of justice and right. Over in Acts chapter 3, as Peter is addressing the multitude on Solomon's porch, who had gathered there as the result of the healing of the lame man, as Peter began to speak to those people concerning the healing of this lame man. In verse 13, he said, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his son Jesus, who you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. Peter affirms that Pilate was determined to let Jesus go, but they insisted on his death. So Pilate the third time said, What evil has he done? I found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But even the suggestion of chastising was Not just. Now, had Jesus been a Roman citizen, they could not have chastised him. You remember when Paul was going through the purification rites in the temple and certain Jews saw him there and 
they, they began to beat up on him and the Roman soldiers came and rescued him and took him to the Antonio Fortress. And as Paul was up on the porch, he asked the captain of the guard, can I talk to these people? And he said, sure. And so Paul started to talk to them in Hebrew, telling them his testimony of conversion. And he was sharing with them uh, how that the Lord met him on the road to Damascus. And uh, the people were listening unto Paul uh, intently. And then Paul mentioned how the Lord called him to go to the Gentiles, and that created a whole new uproar. They began to throw dirt in the air. They began to scream out, kill him, and they began to rush uh, towards the fortress. And the captain said, bring him in, you know, for his own protection. And they closed the fortress doors. And the captain, just walking away, said to the guards, Scourge him. Find out what he said. He was talking in Hebrew and they didn't understand it. So find out what he said to create that uproar. Scourge him. So as they were preparing Paul for this chastising or scourging, Paul just said to the guard, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen who's not been accused? And he said, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes, I am. So he ran into the captain. He said, did you know that guy's a Roman citizen? And he came out and he said, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes, sir. He said, I bought my citizenship. Cost me quite a bit. How much do you have to pay? Paul said, I was free born. And so they stopped that proceeding uh, of, of, of the chastisement because he was a Roman citizen. Had Jesus been a Roman citizen, it would have been unlawful to chastise him without accusations being proven against him. And so Pilate, in suggesting chastising, was making a very serious compromise with justice. The purpose of chastisement was to elicit confessions from the prisoners. <laughs> Today, we've come a long way in civil rights. Uh, you have to be careful how you arrest a man. Uh, you have to notify him of all of his uh, uh, rights that he has to remain silent and uh, to have an attorney, a representative, and the whole thing. And if you, you know, don't give him all of his rights and all, uh, the whole case can be thrown out because you didn't arrest him in the proper manner. And uh, the, it, it's uh, almost ridiculous now uh, how that, uh, you know, you, you, you found uh, uh, the cocaine, a trunk full, but you had no right to open the trunk, and therefore the man can go free, you know. Uh, you didn't have... Uh, you know, reasonable cause. And, and all of these little legal loopholes they had, not then. Now, it used to be when I was a kid, they'd talk about the third degree. And in the cartoons, you'd see a guy, you know, and you'd see this bright light on him and, and the detectives around him and really grilling him, you know, and, and threatening him and, you know, punching him and all and to get the truth out of him. Uh, but that doesn't, well, it, it doesn't openly happen anymore. <laughs> Prisoners have their rights. Uh, and, but in Roman uh, justice, once a man had been 
found guilty. Before he was crucified, quite often, or executed, quite often, they would give him this Roman third degree, this chastising, which was a whipping with a leather whip in which little bits of cut glass and lead had been embedded. And they would tie the prisoner to a post and his position would be such as leaning over so that his whole back is exposed. And the guard would lay the lash down on his back and flip it back. And as he flipped it back, the little bits of lead and glass would pull up bits of flesh. Standing by would be a secretary who would write down the confessions of the prisoner. And they had sort of an unwritten code that if the man would confess to a crime, that the next lash would be a little easier. And as long as he continued to confess to different crimes, it would be easier and easier on him. By this method, the Roman government was able to clear up a lot of unsolved crimes as confession would be made so a fellow could make it easy on himself. Conversely, if they did not confess to a crime, the next lash would be a little harder and a little harder. Think of the dilemma that Jesus had. There was nothing to confess to. And as a lamb before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth, the scripture tells us. So he received the full brunt of that chastisement, which was an injustice, but it was only the beginning of the injustices for his crucifixion was the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. Nothing compares with the injustice of man that was demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ. And so Pilate, in suggesting that he would chastise him and let him go, was violating Roman justice. But they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And here, I think, is one of those tragic verses of Scripture. And the voices of them and the chief priest prevailed. They won. Not because their cause was just. Not because their cause was right. But because of their loud insistence Their voices prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required, not as he knew to be just, but as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus, notice, 
to their will. It wasn't his will. He delivered Jesus to their will. There is no question at all but that the responsibility is being placed directly upon the religious leaders. Pilate and the Roman, representing the Roman government and the Roman law, was desiring to release Jesus because that was just. It was they who were requiring his crucifixion. We read in another gospel that Pilate ordered that a basin of water be brought and in their presence he washed his hands in the water and he said, I wash my hands of this affair. I'm innocent of this man's blood. I want you to see to that. And they all cried out, his blood be upon us and our children. What a horrible cry. And if you read Josephus, The Wars of the Jews, chapter 7, you will read the horrible consequences of their cry, His blood be upon us and our children. And so they led him away and laid hold of one Simon, who was a Cyrenian, who was coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Oh, how prophetic are these words of Jesus. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and weep for your children. Read again, I encourage you, Josephus and the wars of the Jews and the destruction of Jerusalem under Titus and the events that preceded the destruction, the anarchy that was going on within the city. Jesus said, For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are those who never had children. Blessed are those breasts that have never nursed. For then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? In other words, these are good times. If they do this in the good times, what are they going to do when things really get bad? Now we are told there were also two other malefactors who were led with him to be put to death. And Matthew tells us that as they were being nailed to the crosses, they railed on Jesus with the crowd. And when they were come to the place that is called Calvary, Golgotha in Hebrew, the place of a skull. There they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right and the other on the left. It's interesting. Uh, the mother of John and James had come to Jesus just a short time earlier. And she said, Lord, I have a request to make of you. And he said, what is it? She said, I want when you come into your kingdom, that 
one of my sons be on your right side and the other on your left. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are they able to drink of the cup that I shall drink? And here they piped up. No doubt they put their mother up to this whole thing because they piped, oh yeah, we can, sure, you bet, you know. And Jesus said, you indeed shall drink of the same cup, but to grant this privilege is not mine but the Father's. But interesting, here he's coming into his kingdom, but rather than than James and John on either side, there are two malefactors, one on the right and one on the left. Then said Jesus, when? When they had come to Calvary and they started to nail him to the cross. As they were driving the spikes through his hands, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Here Jesus is, in essence, practicing what he preached. He said, bless those that curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And here we find him praying for these transgressors as they are nailing him to the cross. They know not what they do. They knew what they were doing, but they didn't know the enormity of what they were doing. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Now, uh, as I was reading through this, I began to jot down a few references. Uh, How that in this short little portion here, so many prophecies were being fulfilled. Uh, He said nothing unto Herod. Isaiah 53 Like a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Pilate said, I will chastise him and release him. Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The two malefactors, one on the right and one on the left, Isaiah 53, 12, and he was numbered with the transgressors in his death. His prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. They parted his raiment and cast lots for his vesture. Psalm 22:18 They parted my garment and upon my vesture did they cast lots. The mocking and the derision. Verse 35 Here the people stood beholding and the rulers also with them deriding him saying he saved others let him save himself if he is the Messiah the chosen of God. Psalm 22:7 and 8 might pay to just look at that and and see how this was being fulfilled as they uh, were mocking Jesus. 
And they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. The derision. And then we read, and the soldiers mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar. Psalm 69, 21, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And then we read on down a little further. Verse 45, and the sun was darkened, it was noon, and the veil of the temple was torn in the middle. And in Amos chapter 8 and verse 9, he speaks how that this would be dark at noon on a clear day. It would turn dark. And so all of these prophecies which led Peter to declare when he was addressing the crowd that had gathered on the day of Pentecost, you, according to the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, with your wicked hands have crucified and slain. The death of Jesus Christ was something that God had planned and even had written out the plan in advance. All of these scriptures, as Peter had said concerning the scriptures, these scriptures must needs be fulfilled. What God has said is certain, it is sure. And what God has said shall surely come to pass. And the fact that God wrote of it in advance only indicates and affirms the fact that this was God's plan. And so, so much of prophecy was fulfilled right at this point in the death of Jesus. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Even sins of ignorance have to be forgiven. Under the law, there was uh, the law that said, and if a man should sin ignorantly, and it gave the sacrifices that he was to offer for the sins of ignorance. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. They parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with him, deriding him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar. Now, this was an act of mercy. The vinegar was uh, mixed with myrrh, and as such was uh, was more or less an anesthesia. It, It was to ease somewhat the pain. Because there's probably nothing more painful than crucifixion. Uh, It was one of the most torturous methods ever devised by man in executing another man. Uh, Your body hanging there on the cross. Uh, As time goes on, the muscles begin to give way. And as the muscles give way, your body begins to actually fall out of joint. And there's an excruciating pain uh, when, when the body begins to fall out of joint. The, and then 
Finally, death comes by suffocation. You have to sort of lift yourself on the spikes that are holding your your feet. You have to sort of lift yourself to get a breath. But of course, as you do, you're ripping uh, the the uh, feet, and and it's extremely painful. And so you, you would hold on and only breathe when you had to, and and then you'd lift yourself, take a breath, and then. But the excruciating pain. It was just a extremely torturous thing. And so the vinegar was was more or less to help ease the pain. However, Jesus refused it. But later on, when he cried, I thirst, they, at this point, gave him the vinegar, and because it was all over, he took it just before he died. Now, there was a superscription that was written over his head in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. That was there as Pilate's retaliation against the Jews. He knew how deep their animosity was against Jesus and against the claim of Jesus as being the Messiah. He knew that that just was and antagonistic to them to the core. And he's sort of just getting even, in a sense, with them, putting this is the king of the Jews. He knew that that would antagonize them. He was angry with them because they had forced him to violate his own conscience They had forced the issue, and and he didn't appreciate it. He succumbed, but still he wanted to get in his last little dig. And so this sign above the cross was Pilate's revenge against the Jews, just to gall them. John tells us they came to Pilate, and they were angry. They said, don't write the king of the Jews. Write, he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate, and I'm sure with a sneer, said, what I have written, I have written. You're not going to push this one on me. I've got the last push. Now, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, if you're the Christ or the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him and said, don't you fear God, man? seeing that we're in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. This man has done nothing amiss. Two malefactors, one on the right, one on the left. Why? Don't know. God designed it. It was part of the prophecies that he would be numbered with the transgressors in his death. It was prophesied. So this is a part of God's plan. But it opens the door for us to speculate on possible reasons why God allowed this. Maybe God wanted one final word concerning the innocence of Jesus. You remember when Judas brought the money back And he said, take this money back. I have betrayed innocent blood. 
The scripture says God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And there is adequate testimony to the innocence of Jesus. Pilate said, I have examined this man and I find no fault in him. Another witness to the innocence of Jesus. Pilate's wife sent a message to him in which she said, have nothing to do with this just man. I've suffered many things last night in a dream because of him. And now one final word. This man has done nothing amiss. The witness of the innocence of Jesus that you might know that he wasn't dying for his sin, he was dying for your sin. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. So that you might know that he was sinless, but yet he bore our sins. It was not for himself that he died, it was for you that he was put to death. There's another possibility. Jesus hated the cross. He was reluctant to die. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember, he was praying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, thy will be done. And and this was so urgent that he repeated it three times until he finally said, if it is not possible, then, you know, he committed himself to the drinking of the cup. But the book of Hebrews tells us, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, though he despised the shame. Jesus despised all of this mocking, even as you would. He he despised this, this whole ordeal, even as you would. But he endured it for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? The ability to forgive men their sins. The joy of being able to bring you from darkness and the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The joy of being able to make you a child of God, washing and cleansing you from all your guilt and all your past, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, the joy of granting forgiveness and entrance into the kingdom of God. Perhaps God planted this one thief next to him so that in the midst of the pain and the suffering, after the three hours of enduring this torment, he might get the first taste of the joy that was set before him. When he said to the man, today you will be with me in paradise. That's why he was dying. To bring sinners unto God. To be able to bring them into the kingdom of God. 
His love was fulfilled in his ability to bring men to God. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And can you imagine Jesus walking in the streets in heaven hand to hand with this thief as the first prize of the work of the cross? You see, he was the first who was saved under the new covenant that God established. The first into the kingdom of heaven of the many that would follow because of the death of Jesus upon the cross. And there God was giving him a foretaste of the glory divine, the ability to bring men unto God. We don't know for sure, but certainly we're able to see in this whole picture the sovereignty of God in salvation. And we see such typical case. Here are two men, two thieves. They are equally close to death. They are both of them dying. And they are equally close to life. They are on either side of Jesus. One dies in his sin and will spend eternity in hell. The other is forgiven his sin and was ushered into paradise forever. Here tonight, side by side, are people sitting. Some of them who have received the forgiveness of God have come to Jesus Christ and others who have not. Hearing the same message, some people are melted by the Spirit of God and others resist and then become hardened. One accepts and with rejoicing receives salvation. Another turns away and says, I don't want anything to do with it. I will not let this man rule over me. And so it is. What makes the difference? Salvation is of the Lord. We don't know how it is that one man's heart is open and another man's heart is closed to the gospel. But such is the case. But the amazing thing to me is the the fact that this man's request was, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And somehow, the Holy Spirit gave him faith to believe that even though Jesus was dying, yet he was coming into the kingdom. Now, this is faith that was greater than that of the disciples. At this point, their hopes for the kingdom were all over. They were dashed. It was through. They had high hopes. They kept saying, Lord, it is now, you know, is it now? Lord, you know, and, and some even believed that Judas was trying to sort of force it. That his, his motives weren't so bad that he was just wanting to get the the thing going. You remember John the Baptist earlier became impatient. He sent his disciples and said, hey, are you the one or, or shall we start looking for someone else? In other words, let's get the show on the road. You know, I'm tired of being in prison here. And, and they were anticipating the immediate establishing of the kingdom. And when they saw him hanging on the cross, their hopes for the kingdom were dashed. His disciples 
on the road to Emmaus, as we'll get next week. As the two of them, they said, and we had hoped for the salvation of Israel, that he was the salvation of Israel. But he was crucified, and it's been three days. Hopes are gone. They were disconsolate. They were walking along the road discouraged. He said, hey, fellas, what's your problem? Why are you so sad? What's going on? They said, are you a stranger around here? You don't know what's happened in Jerusalem the last couple of days? No, what are you talking about? Well, there was a man named Jesus. (laughs) Imagine Jesus listening to them describing him. And then he opened up the scriptures and their hearts began to burn. But here's a dying thief being crucified next to a man who has a sign above his head. This is the king of the Jews, and he believed it. And somehow he believed that though he was dying, he was coming into his kingdom. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? Oh, how easy salvation is. How simple God has made it. Oh, if there was ever a a, a lesson that taught us that Salvation is not of works. It's right here. He, he couldn't do much works at this point. Not much he could do for God now. And yet, the comforting words of Jesus in response to his simple request, just remember me. Jesus said today, you'll be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour, starting The day at six in the morning, the sixth hour would be noon. There was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, which would be three o'clock in the afternoon. This was a supernatural phenomenon. It could not have been an eclipse because the Passover always takes place at full moon. And it's impossible to have an eclipse at full moon. It's impossible for the moon to pass, you know, between the earth and the sun uh, at a full moon. It just doesn't happen. So, because you notice that full moon, it says the sun is going down, that the moon always rises on a full moon. They sort of coincide. The sun is going down as the moon rises with a full moon. So, it it was a supernatural phenomena, this darkness. Some try and, you know, date even the crucifixion by the eclipse. Ah, wrong, wrong, wrong. And they don't know astronomy. So when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He cried with a loud voice, commending his spirit into the Father's hands. Lord, it's over, it's finished. And having said this, He gave up the ghost. It's a description of death. It's the separation of a man's spirit from his body or his consciousness from his body. Uh, Today, it's still used as a definition for death, the separation of a man's consciousness from his body when the brain is no longer functioning. He's considered dead medically. Jesus had said, no man takes my life from me. I give my life. And so we find him giving his life for you and for me. Now when the centurion saw what was done, 
that is the Roman soldier who was in charge of the crucifixion, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breast and returned. And all of his acquaintance, the women that followed him from Galilee, they stood afar off beholding these things. What a dark, dismal day for them. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor. He was a good man. He was just. He had not consented to the council and the deed of them. He was a man who was a ruler. He was there at the trial, but he did not consent to their decision. He was from Arimathea, the city of the Jews, and he was also a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. A fresh sepulcher, which we are told by John was in a garden and it was near the spot where Jesus was crucified. And that day was the preparation and the Sabbath was drawing on. It was evening, now three o'clock in the afternoon, when Jesus dismissed his spirit. And uh, at sundown, the Sabbath begins. It has to be that he is all wrapped and taken care of. It was a quick operation. After Jesus died, he ran to Pilate, wanted the body of Jesus. Pilate didn't know that he was dead yet, so he inquired from the soldiers if Jesus had already died, and they affirmed that he had. So he granted Joseph the right, and Joseph got the linen, wrapped Jesus, and, and quickly put him in the uh, sepulcher uh, that was hewn out of a stone. And they rolled the door over uh, the door of the sepulcher. Had to be done by sundown when the Sabbath began. And the women also which came with him from Galilee who were following after him, they beheld the sepulcher and how the body was laid. And they returned and they began to prepare the spices and ointments. And they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. And so <laughs> chapter 23 sort of leaves us in a dark spot, but you'll have to come to 24 to come out of it and uh, lifted in the glorious light of the resurrection as we finish the Gospel of Luke, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now, the 23rd chapter ended with the burial of Jesus. If that were the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we might as well all go home. There is no gospel. The gospel is, the good news is that though he was crucified and buried, he rose again. And therein we have the gospel. It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the whole gospel hinges on the fact of the resurrection. If there be no resurrection, then there is no gospel. We are still in our sins. 
Those who have died with a hope in Christ have perished. It's all over. We're of all to be most pitied if there is no resurrection of Jesus. Now, we know that when Luke wrote this, he didn't write chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2. He didn't set out verses and chapters. He just wrote the whole thing without verses and chapters. These verses and chapters were added by men to help us to reference certain passages. Because there is a scripture that just is very meaningful to me. How do I find it? And so because we have it divided into chapters and verses, we can reference uh, the scripture. So it's a handy way to reference. But many times we come to an end of the chapter and we sort of think, well, you know, that's the end of the chapter. But the story goes on. And if, if it all ended at chapter 23, we'd, you know, be in a mess. But the story goes on. But it is a continuous story, and it's very evident by looking at the end of chapter 23. And we read in verse 55, And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after, that is, Joseph took the body of Jesus to bury it in the sepulcher, and so they were following Joseph, who was carrying the body of Jesus, and they beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the sepulcher. So the they of chapter uh 24, first verse, is identified by the last verse of the 23rd chapter, they being the women who had come from the Galilee region. Jesus traveled with a large company. We think of the, of the 12 apostles, but actually there were hundreds of disciples. And when Jesus would travel, there would be a great crowd that would travel with him. Now, you've got to think of logistics. When you're traveling, you've got to have food. You've got to have, uh, you know, other things besides just, you know, walking along. And they, they didn't have Motel 6. Uh, and they didn't have buses and all, but they were walking. And, uh, you know, if you rip your uh, robe on a, bush or something, you have to have a lady around who can sew the thing up. And, uh, of course, you need ladies to prepare the food and all. And so there were many ladies that traveled with them also. And these ladies had come from Galilee as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem. They were devout followers of Jesus. Uh, among them, of course, was Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary, who was from the little uh, uh, I was going to say Sea Coast, but it is the Sea of Galilee. It's called that. But she was from uh, one of the little uh, cities uh, or villages along the shores of the Galilee, Magdala. And uh, there were many others who came, and they were very interested. When Jesus was uh, being crucified, they were standing there watching the crucifixion. 
They watched as Joseph took him down. They followed Joseph to the tomb where he uh, placed Jesus, and they were watching the whole event. And then they went home, and uh, they went uh, began to prepare the spices and the perfumes and all to take back and to put in the folds of the wrapping around the body of Jesus uh, to pay their final respects. But Sabbath day came, and so they had to wait for the Sabbath. But early in the morning, on the first day of the week, the women were back there or heading back toward the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And there were certain others with them. And they found that the stone was rolled away from the sepulcher. Now Mark tells us while they were on their way to the sepulcher, they were worried. They were saying, who's going to roll away the stone? Because he tells us it was a great stone. In Jerusalem today, you can go to a couple of these stone uh, sepulchers. They're hewn out of the stone. There's one right near the King David Hotel. It's called the Tomb of Herod, which it is not, but uh, it is right there just beside almost the King David Hotel. And uh, there is this burial cave, and there is this stone uh, that they roll over the, the opening of the cave. The stone is rolled back, but uh, it is huge. I can understand the women saying, who's going to roll away the stone for us? Uh, there is another place uh, sort of near the garden tomb that's called the King's Tombs, very fancy burial area. And uh, they have there, again, a, another cave. And you can go inside and you find all these little niches where they had buried people. It was more than just, it was a family kind of a, a mausoleum. And there's a huge stone in front of it in a groove, and you roll the stone back and roll it in. But I got up on the wall and put my feet on it and tried to push it with my feet, and uh, I couldn't do it. Uh, it was really heavy and, and really lodged in there. So I can understand the women's uh, saying, who's going to roll away the stone? When they got there, to their amazement, the stone was already rolled away. Just a little side note. It's interesting the things that we often worry about. Here the women were worried about who's going to roll away the stone. Now all of their worry about that was worthless because when they got there, the stone was already rolled away. And how many times we find in life we're worried about something, but by the time we get there, we find the Lord's already been there before us and taken care of it. And all of our worry was just wasted effort, wasted time, because the Lord had already taken care of it. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke on our next broadcast, as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the resurrection of Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 23-24 through 24 when visiting thewordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. 
If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you again, over and over, that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. According to your determined counsel, He came to manifest your love for us by taking our sins and receiving the penalty and the justice of God in dying for our sins so that your righteous demands of justice were satisfied by Jesus who bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, sinners as we are, might know the joy of hearing his words. You will spend eternity with me in paradise. O Lord, we acknowledge you as our king tonight. We gladly bow our knee before your throne. We bow before your scepter, your righteous scepter. And we pledge, Lord, our allegiance, our love, our lives to you, to serve you, Lord, in whatever capacity you ordain. For we love you, Lord, because you first loved us. Help us, Lord, to be your disciples and to do those things always that please you. Give us the strength that we need to live in this world that is still rebelling against you, the world that is still saying we'll not have this man to rule over us. Lord, we ask that you would rule over us. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Pastor Greg Laurie. Rarely does a man come along that literally changes a generation. But such a man came, and that man is here tonight, and his name is Chuck Smith. Yeah? Join Pastor Greg in an exclusive interview with Pastor Chuck. Listen to rarely heard stories and memories in Chuck's own words about the events that influenced him and how he, in turn, influenced so many. We have only one life and it'll soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. 
To order a copy of the special DVD with Greg Laurie and Chuck Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673. Again, the number to call is 800-272-WORD.